All right, well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Sunday School. Please find your seats if you haven't already. Now that summer vacation is over, we jump back into Sunday School. We jump back into our Fundamentals of the Faith, or FOF, series. What is uh, Fundamentals of the Faith? This is our Sunday School class in which we lay a critical foundation of biblical theology and practice. And this is to reinforce our convictions It is to fill gaps in our understanding, and it is to bring our church to greater unity. So I'm glad you're here today. We are on Lesson 14, which is the, for us, the seventh chapter of our Fundamentals of the Faith book. If you're just joining us, don't worry. If you haven't been with us before, you can still follow. You should still be able to follow what we're talking about today, but you do want to get yourself a workbook. We do still have more workbooks. Our greeters in the back, Dwayne in the back, has workbooks for you. We just ask for a $5 donation if you're able, but get the workbook because, um, and if you need a workbook, you can just go back to it right now, or you can raise your hand, and maybe Dwayne can bring it over to you. Workbook has homework that will help you prepare for each lesson, and the questions and answers in the workbook are also featured in each lesson. We go over many of those, so if you don't have a workbook, if you don't bring it with you, you're going to be like, uh, what's Pastor Dave talking about? What are the other teachers talking about? I can't really follow along. Get the workbook, bring the workbook, do the workbook. You'll benefit a lot more from this class. Also, if you missed the previous lessons, remember, they are recorded. They are on They are online at our website, calvaryem.org. You can go back and watch or listen to the lessons that you've missed, and you'll definitely want to do that because these are all fundamental. So far in our FOF class, we have done 13 lessons on the first six chapters in our book. I've looked at an introduction to the Bible, how to know the Bible, God, his character and attributes, the person of Jesus Christ, the work of Christ, and salvation. Now, over the next few months, we're going to go through the rest of the FOF chapters, which are what's on the right of the slide, the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit, prayer and the believer, the church, fellowship and worship, spiritual gifts, evangelism and the believer, obedience, and God's will and guidance. Now, perhaps you've had questions about some of these topics, but even if you haven't, these are the biblical fundamentals that you want to make sure that you have right and that you excel still more in. Why? Well, it's for your good. It's for the good of our body, the church, and it's for the glory of God. So, many reasons why you should benefit from this course. Well, today we are in part one of the very next lesson in our series, and that is the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray before we get into the real meat of our lesson. God in heaven, we love to learn about you and to talk about you, but you are a holy God. You are mysterious. There are things that we could never know unless you showed us in your Bible. But even that, Lord, if we're not careful, we can misunderstand. So help us to know what your Bible says, in particular about the Holy Spirit. Lord, cause these things that we learn to not only have us to have proper belief, but a awe-filled and worshipful belief. Help me to be able to explain this today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, one way that we often get ourselves into trouble in life is by overreacting, by overreaction. Something happens, let's say, something sorrowful, something painful, something evil or maybe just something that's simply inconvenient, and we don't just react, we overreact. We suddenly take an action or a position that is extreme and unjustified based on whatever it was that occurred. For example, let's say that someone of a certain group mistreats you or advances a cause that you don't like, and so you suddenly become prejudiced against that person's whole group. You say, see, this is why you can't trust women. Or this is why you can't trust men. Or this is why you can't trust black people, or white people, or immigrants, or cops. But such thinking is an overreaction. In itself, as a form of mistreating others. 
Rather than treating a whole group as all bad or all good, a wise and biblical approach is to acknowledge that there are good and bad in every group. There's no need for that prejudice. Or another example, you try out a new skill, maybe cooking or drawing or teaching, but your first attempt at using the skill doesn't go well. And so you decide you're totally going to abandon the pursuit. Never try it again. Obviously, I'm no good at this. I'll never learn how to do it. Why keep going? That's an overreaction, one that's ultimately unhelpful to you and probably to others too. You may not be particularly talented at a certain task. And yes, maybe you'll find that your efforts are better focused elsewhere. But you won't know that for certain without a certain sustained attempt at that skill at using and developing that skill. You might be surprised that if you just persevere a little, a little, you might actually have a talent for it, or at least you can improve greatly. Now this we recognize. Overreaction is generally a bad thing. What's true about life in general, though, is also true about religion, true about spiritual life, and true about Christian theology. Sometimes a certain experience in the church, either the local church, or just the church at large, it can tempt us to overreact in a way that is unhelpful and even in a way that is unbiblical or sinful. This is certainly, a case, certainly the case when it comes to the topic of the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Today, unfortunately, the Holy Spirit is often treated or spoken of in a way that is terribly erroneous and even downright blasphemous. Let me invite your participation here. Can anyone provide any examples of how the Spirit is spoken of erroneously or treated wrongly today? Yeah, Mark. Yeah, that's right. The Spirit is cited to justify teaching or actions that contradict the Bible. The Spirit led me to do this. I feel led by the Spirit to do this. Wait, that goes against the Bible. Yep, that's one example. What else? Yeah, Tony. That's right. There's certainly in the last few decades, the Holy Spirit is relied upon for various showy, fake, and disorderly miraculous works. Being slain in the Spirit people speaking in chaotic gibberish that they call tongues, healings which are very carefully orchestrated and cannot be replicated and don't last. Those types of things are all attributed to the Spirit. What else? Yeah, Mike. Yeah. I think that's definitely true as well, Mike, noting that there's this thought, there's this belief, there's this teaching that the Holy Spirit is really for all your benefit, even to fulfill your desires. The Spirit is the way to bring prosperity into your life. He will make you healthy and rich and popular. These are some things that are being attributed to the Spirit today. But there are others. The Holy Spirit is used as a cover for emotional manipulation, even via music. The Holy Spirit is used as an excuse to avoid Bible study or critical thinking. I'm just going to rely on the Spirit. Why are you relying on yourself? You need to rely on the Spirit. Why are you even worried about studying the Bible? And I'm sure there are others. And these are serious. These are great errors hurting the true church. And they wrong and dishonor the Holy Spirit. Many of these, of course, have been promoted by prosperity. Oh, yes, Pastor Bobby. Ah, okay. Yeah, Pastor Bobby pointing out that another thing that we see is that there's so much emphasis on the Spirit that Christ is hardly talked about at all. No emphasis on Christ anymore. Right. So this overemphasis on the Spirit or this attributing things to the Spirit, which are actually anti-biblical. Many of these are promoted by prosperity preachers and the charismatic and Pentecostal movement. 
However, as conservative evangelicals, our efforts to protect ourselves and others from errors having to do with the Holy Spirit can become an overreaction. We can become so, so zealous for protecting people from the errors that we see or even protecting ourselves from it that we overreact. And rather than bringing the Spirit back into its proper place, we downplay the Spirit. We seldom talk about the Holy Spirit. We avoid any of the phrases that are being abused by other people. We don't talk about spirit filling. We don't talk about spirit anointing. We're afraid to do so. We are suspicious of emotion in the church, especially in the context of music. We prefer just very rational, nothing that's going to be emotional. We may even get to the point where we speak as if, or maybe we actually expect in our hearts that there's nothing supernatural about the Christian life. It's all about Bible study and careful thinking. But as with the other examples I gave of overreaction, we don't want to be caught in either extreme. In avoiding one error, we don't want to go to another. Rather, we want to know what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit and hold fast to that. Don't just simply react. We want to ask what's biblical. And so that's why we're going through this. What does the Bible tell us about the Holy Spirit, his person, and his work? Well, today we're going to investigate part one of that question. We're going to focus on the person of the Holy Spirit. Next week we'll focus on part two, which is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. What does he do? What can we expect from him? Now, if you have your workbooks, please open to chapter seven, lesson seven. We're going to go through that, or at least the first portion of that. Who exactly is the Holy Spirit? Allow me to provide you a basic answer that we'll expand upon in today's lesson. Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is a separate person from God the Father and God the Son, yet fully God. The Holy Spirit is God. Now, do you hear or do you read in that definition the terms person and God? Those are the two terms that we're going to explore further along with the fundamental, under, fundamental understanding of God as Trinity today. Let's first see how the Holy Spirit is a person. If you look at Roman numeral one in your workbooks, I'm going to go through some of these things. Whenever you're reading through the Bible, and you see the Spirit being referred to with a pronoun, which pronoun is used for the Spirit? He or it? He. In our translations, we see he. What's significant about that translation choice? Does it matter? Yeah, he is used for persons. It is used for non-persons. And yet our translations say he, and that is proper. He is a proper translation of the Holy Spirit because he is a person. He is not an impersonal emanation. He is not like the force from Star Wars. The Holy Spirit is a person. And he's an independent person. That is, he is a person different from either the Father or the Son. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to John 14, 26. I'm just going to look at a verse that helps illustrate this. John 14, 26. I'll read that. John 14, 26. But the Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now look at this verse. How many different persons do you see mentioned in this one verse? Four. Who are they? We have the Father, we have, what are the specific terms used there? Sorry, I can't really hear, you need to speak up. We got the Helper, also, the, also identified as the Holy Spirit. And then we have my, I, and then you, your. Who's the I? This is Jesus the Son speaking, and who's the you? 
this is Christ's disciples. This is his speaking to them before his crucifixion. So we see four different persons mentioned here. And according to this verse, of course, one of them is not, not God. According to this verse, is it possible that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit could just be different masks or modes for the same God? No, that's not possible. Why not? That's right, because they're interacting with one another. He says, the Father will send the Helper, the Holy Spirit, in my name. And he would teach you these things. So indeed, we see that the Bible, just even from this one verse, of course there are many others, we see that the Spirit is identified as a person and as an independent person. Furthermore, the Bible describes the Holy Spirit as having the fundamental attributes of personality. This you see under letter B in your workbooks, the attributes of personality. And we'll go through the three of those. According to the Bible, the Holy Spirit clearly has intellect. He possesses the ability to know and understand reality. Romans 8.27 says, and I'll just read this, just listen. Romans 8.27 says, And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he, inter he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So, B1A in your workbook. The Holy Spirit has a what? A mind. The Holy Spirit has a mind. Looking at the next verse, 1 Corinthians 2, actually verses 10 and 11 are right next to each other, so I'll just read those both to you. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11 says, For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. So, B1B, the Holy Spirit searches what? All things, even the depths of God. And B1C, the Holy Spirit knows what? Knows the depths of God, knows the thoughts of God. Yeah, yeah. Only the Spirit knows. But to know and to be able to search out these thoughts, the Holy Spirit must have intellect. But it's not just intellect. Look at number two. The Holy Spirit also has emotion. He possesses the ability to experience different emotions. And Ephesians 4.30 is the one verse provided here. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So what emotion can the Holy Spirit feel, according to Ephesians? Grief, sorrow. By the way, in that context, what grieves the Holy Spirit? What grieves the Holy Spirit? Sin does. Uh, you know, Ephesians 4.29 comes right before it. When you have unwholesome words that come out of your mouth, that grieves the Holy Spirit. When you don't have wholesome words come out of your mouth, which should come, that grieves the Holy Spirit. Or the verse right afterwards talks about having anger rather than kindness and forgiveness. That grieves the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit experiences griefs because the Holy Spirit is a person, has personal emotion. Finally, the Bible shows us, number three, that the Holy Spirit has volition. What is volition? Yeah, it's the ability to choose, the ability to use your will, the faculty or power of using one's will. To say that the Holy Spirit has volition means that the Holy Spirit has a will that he uses, possesses the ability to determine or act decisively. And B3 asks us to list the decision or judgment in a few verses that demonstrate the Holy Spirit's volition. So first we have 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 and 11. Actually, I think it would be helpful if we read verses 4 to 7 and then 11. So listen as I read that to you. 2 Corinthians 12, 4 to 7 and then 11. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of ministries in the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things and all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Verse 11. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. So how does the Spirit exercise volition in these verses? That's right. He is providing 
He is distributing gifts as he wills. Spiritual gifts as he wills. And then another verse, Acts 13.2. Acts 13.2, listen. It says, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So in Acts 13.2, how do we see the Spirit's volition? What does the Spirit choose? Say that again, Eric. That's right. He says, I've set apart Barnabas and Saul. I've chosen them for a certain ministry. That's the Holy Spirit exercising his will, exercising his volition. So intellect, emotion, volition, these are the things that a person has. And if the Holy Spirit has all these, the Holy Spirit must be a person. He has the attributes of personality. But there's more. And this will go beyond the workbook now. How else do we know that the Holy Spirit is a person? The Holy Spirit can receive personal responses from people. Let me read some verses to you, and you tell me how people can personally respond to the Spirit. The first one is Acts 10, 19 to 21. Acts 10, 19 to 21. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. But get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? So what does Peter do to the Spirit there? Did you say something, Eric? He obeyed the Spirit. The Spirit said, Do this, and Peter did it. The Holy Spirit can be obeyed. But there's a flip side to that, isn't there? Acts 7.51. Acts 7.51. It's part of Stephen's speech. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. What's the personal response to the Spirit there? Resisting. You can resist the Holy Spirit. Worse, Acts 5.3. Acts 5.3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? So what else can you do? And lie to the Holy Spirit. And there's Hebrews 10.29. Hebrews 10.29. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? So what else can you do as a personal response to the Holy Spirit? You can insult him. We've already read in Ephesians 4.30 how you can grieve the Spirit. There's also Mark 3.28-29, Mark 3.28-29, which says, Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men, but, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So one other way you can respond personally to the Holy Spirit, as noted in the Scriptures, is that you can blaspheme Him. Why does the Bible mention these various types of personal responses to the Spirit? Because the Spirit is a person. He's not a force. He's not an energy. He's a person. And then we could add one more category. This is pretty abundant evidence, right? The Holy Spirit must also be a person because he demonstrates the actions of a person. He does the types of things that only a person could do. And I'll give you some more verses, and you tell me what is the personal action that the Spirit does. Acts 8.29, Acts 8.29. Then the Spirit said to Philip, go, go up and join this chariot. What's the personal action? He speaks, he communicates, he talks. We actually saw that in other verses too. John 14.26, John 14.26, we read this already. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. What's the personal action? He teaches. Holy Spirit teaches. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, we saw that one. The Spirit distributes gifts as he wills. 1 Corinthians 2, 10, which we also read. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. As a person, the Spirit searches. John 15, 26. John 15, 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. So what's the personal action? He testifies. 
And then Acts 16, verses 6 to 7. Acts 16, 6 to 7. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go in Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. So what's the personal action in these two verses? Okay, the Spirit is restraining certain actions. He's forbidding, or he's not permitting. Though if you know the context... So I was just reading that there at the end of the beginning of Acts 16. Where do Paul and company end up? They can't go to Asia. They can't go to Bithynia. Where do they end up going? They see a vision. A certain man from a certain place saying, come over and help us. Macedonia. They end up in Macedonia. So the Spirit was preventing them from going to other regions in order so that they would go to the place that God wanted them to go, which is Macedonia. So what was the Spirit ultimately doing? was guiding, was directing, even by preventing them from going certain places. And these are the actions of a person. These are the types of things that only a person could do. So from the many verses we've sampled, we can conclude with confidence that the Holy Spirit is a person, an independent person, separate from the Father, separate from the Son. But is the Holy Spirit God? That's the second part that we want to investigate. Let's see what the Bible shows us regarding the second part of the Holy Spirit's identity. This is Roman numeral 2 in your books. Next page. The Holy Spirit is God. How do we know that? Well, in assessing whether the Holy Spirit is God, one angle would simply be to compare the attributes that are ascribed to the Holy Spirit and the attributes that are ascribed to God. They're the same. Well, the Holy Spirit must be God. You have a table at the top of your workbooks on uh, the top of that page on the workbook, under A, attributes. And we do see here that the same attributes ascribed to God are ascribed to the Holy Spirit. And we'll look at the supporting verses for each one of those. Actually, can I get some volunteers to read these verses? Can I get somebody to read Isaiah 40, verses 13 to 14? Mark, could you read that? Uh, Mike, could you get ready Psalm 139, 7? Can I get somebody for Hebrews 9, 14? Eric? And then can I get somebody for uh, 1 John 5, 6? I think there's a typo here. 1 John 5, 6, uh, Danny, and then Tony, could you do John 16, 13? All right, let's hear from Isaiah 40, verses 13 and 14. Mark, I think that's you. Thanks, Mark. So that's a bunch of questions. Of course, those are rhetorical questions with an expected answer. What's the expected answer? No one. No one was the person the Spirit consulted or gave him understanding or taught him. He didn't need that. Now, what does that mean? What's the implication? Say that again. He must be God because what attribute is he showing? He knows all things, the omniscience. He has consummate wisdom, consummate knowledge. He must already know everything because the Spirit of God is omniscient. And that is an attribute of God. Now, Psalm 139.7. Mike. right, whither, or we could simply say where. Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? Another set of rhetorical questions. What's the expected answer? Nowhere. You can't get away from the spirit. Why? Because he's everywhere. Or to say that in terms of an attribute of God, he is omnipresent. But how can the spirit be omnipresent like God? Because the spirit is God. Hebrews 9.14. Eric. Very good. So, of course, all these verses have wonderful truths that we can mind, but we're just focusing on little bits of it. Notice the description given of the Spirit there. He is the eternal Spirit, without beginning or end. Now, no being is eternal aside from God, for God created all other beings. 
So the Bible says that the Spirit is eternal, and the Spirit must be God. The Spirit must be God. And then finally, two other, or yeah, we have two other verses for one attribute. First John 5, 6 is Danny. Good. And then, Tony, why don't you give yours too? Very good. So notice from those two verses, certain phrases with the Spirit. The Spirit doesn't simply speak the truth. According to 1 John 5, 6, the Spirit is the truth. He is the spirit of truth, as the other verse says. Truth is his essence. Truth is what he is. How could such an absolute statement describe a being other than God? Well, it doesn't, because the spirit, the spirit is God. That's why he can be called the truth and the spirit of truth. So, Simply on the basis of attributes, we must acknowledge that the Holy Spirit is God. But there are also certain statements in the Bible that explicitly or more explicitly identify the Spirit as God. Look under B, so Roman numeral 2, B, statements of deity. We have two verses to look at there. For number 1, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 3.17 and notice key statements that shows that the Holy Spirit is God. Actually, we'll look at two verses together. Yeah, you can turn over there. 2 Corinthians, 7, or 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 18. That's Colossians. All right. Let's see if there's something here that identifies the Spirit as God. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Ah, this is interesting. What phrases here identify the Spirit as God? Say that again, Eric. That's right. It says, the Lord is the Spirit. And then in verse 18, the Lord, the Spirit. Now, that second phrase grammatically is called apposition. It's where you restate the identity of something using another word. He's not talking about two different people there at the end of verse 18. He's just calling the same person by two different names. The Lord, the Spirit. Now, the Lord is often a title used to denote Jesus in the Bible, in the New Testament. Though we should note that the phrase is also a customary way that the special covenant name of Yahweh is translated in the New Testament. If you ever compare Old Testament passage and then a New Testament passage that quotes it, in the Old Testament passage you might see the term THE LORD in all caps, which is really the name Yahweh. But in the New Testament quoting of that verse, it's just LORD or THE LORD. Not even in all caps. Why is that? Well, that's the way that when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, into the Septuagint, that's the way they translated the name Yahweh, as the Lord, Kyrios in the New Testament Greek language. So talking about Yahweh in the New Testament, they call him the Lord. And there's a certain tradition that comes from that, even in our English Bible translations. Why does it say the Lord in all caps in our Old Testaments? Well, we've inherited that same kind of tradition. What is Yahweh? You bring it into Greek, eventually bring it into English, we still call him the Lord. But really, in the original Hebrew, it would have been Yahweh. Legacy Standard Bible translates this as Yahweh to reflect that. But the Lord is fine too, because that's what we see happen in the New Testament. All that to say, the Lord in the New Testament often is just another way of saying Yahweh from the Old Testament. And if Jesus is the Lord even the same one that's quoted from the Old Testament as being Yahweh, then Jesus is Yahweh. But notice, especially from these two verses, the same is true of the Holy Spirit. 
If the Holy Spirit is the Lord, then the Holy Spirit is Yahweh. Yahweh is the Spirit. And Yahweh is God. So if you call the Spirit the Lord, if you call the Spirit Yahweh, then the Spirit is God. This is explicitly identified for us just in these two verses. There's another passage that does something similar. Uh, Acts 5, verses 3 and 4. Why don't you turn over there too? Acts 5, 3 and 4. So this is the episode with Ananias and Sapphira. We read one of these verses already. But Acts 5, 3 and 4, we read. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. Interesting. Notice in verse 3, to whom did Ananias lie? The Holy Spirit. But in verse 4, to whom did Ananias lie? God. Why this sudden strange switch from the Holy Spirit to God? It's not a sudden or strange switch at all if we recognize that the Holy Spirit is God. Thus, B2 uh, yeah, uh, blank for B2. To lie to the Holy Spirit is the same thing as lying to God. So then, both by identification of divine attributes and by explicit identification of the Holy Spirit's divinity, we see that the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God. But just to add a little icing on the cake, here's one more angle not mentioned in your book. The Holy Spirit is also given divine titles. Names that are very similar to or that are the same as the Father and the Son. We kind of saw this with the Lord already, but I'll go through some of these other ones quickly. First John 5, 6 calls the Spirit the Spirit of truth. Romans 8, 2 calls the Spirit the Spirit of life. Compare Jesus being called the truth and the life in John 14, 6. The Spirit is called living water in John 7, 38 to 39. Compare Jesus being called the living bread in John 6, 51. And the Father being called the living Father in John 6, 57. The Spirit is called the Spirit of glory in 1 Peter 4, 14. Compare Jesus being called the Lord of glory in 1 Corinthians 2, 8. And the Father being called the Father of glory in Ephesians 1, 17. And, of course, the main title for the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible is the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and holiness is the most repeated attribute of God in the Bible. Just one example, Leviticus 11.45, God speaking. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. He is the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not even an exhaustive presentation of the Spirit's divinity. We could add more angles to show that the Spirit is God, but I think this is already enough. We already have seen from many verses that not only is the Spirit an independent person, but the Holy Spirit is God. He is the one true God. But this all might raise a certain question, especially for anyone who's coming out of Judaism. If there's only one God, as the Bible says, especially the Old Testament clearly teaches, then how can the Father be God, Jesus the Son be God, and the Holy Spirit be God, yet distinct from each other? Isn't this three gods then? And a contradiction of verses like Isaiah 45, 22, Isaiah 45, 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Are we contradicting monotheism with this? No. The Bible does not contradict itself. And does not teach tritheism, but instead it teaches God as Trinity. Now the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. An honest assessment of the teaching of the Bible yields the doctrine of the Trinity. Based on what the Bible says, God must be triune. There is one living and true God eternally existing in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
They are co-equal, completely equal. They are co-eternal. They are just as eternal as each other are. And consubstantial, that is, they are of the same essence. Therefore, each deserves the same worship and obedience. And this is just like we were learning last week from John 5, right? When we're talking about the Father and the Son. And we read that the Father's determined that the Son should get the same honor as the Father. That's why he gave all judgment to the Son. That's the Trinity. They are co-equal, co-eternal, consubstantial. Therefore, they are worthy of the same worship and obedience. It is required. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all deserve it. To rehearse a very brief argument for the Trinity from the Bible, there is only one God. The Bible is very obvious about this. Deuteronomy 6.4, Isaiah 45.22. Yet there is a clear plurality to God even in the Old Testament. Don't get the idea that, okay, you know, this is just some concept that Christians just attached, just put right on top of whatever was given in the Old Testament. No, this was in the Old Testament too, in part. We see a reference to God as plural right in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis 1.26a, let us make man in our image. And the concept is repeated, Genesis 3.22, the man has become like us, knowing good and evil. But that's not even it. How many times in the Old Testament do we see the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, who, based on certain contexts, we know is Yahweh, is the Lord, but also acts on behalf of Yahweh, on behalf of the Lord. He's sent by Yahweh and the Lord. How can that be? I'm sure that definitely caused the ancient Jews to scratch their heads. But there was this notion of plurality in God, which could not be fully understood even in the Old Testament. But the New Testament clarifies this. The New Testament clearly teaches that the Father is God, the Son, Jesus Christ, is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. There's only one God, and yet these three persons are God. And yet they are distinct from each other. It's not like, as some have erroneously taught throughout the centuries, this is just God changing outfits. He was the Father, and then he became the Son, and then he became the Spirit. No, as we saw in John 14, 26, the persons of the Trinity interact with each other. It's even more obvious at the baptism of Jesus. Uh, one instance of that in Mark 1, 10 to 11. Do you remember what happens there that shows that all three persons are not, this is not God as a quick change artist? What happens that shows that each person is separate from one another? What does the Father do in that instance of Jesus' baptism? He speaks, this is my beloved Son. What does the Spirit do? The Spirit descends as a dove, or like a dove descends. It's, it could be translated either way. But the Spirit is descending, the Father is speaking, and then what's the Son doing? He's being baptized. He's coming out of the water. So no, there's no way that this is just God in different modes. These are three separate persons. They are independent of one another. And of course, the threeness even the separateness of the three persons is backed up in the various Trinitarian formulae used throughout the New Testament, such as in the Great Commission, baptizing the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there is no other explanation for these facts, these, these bits of data in the Bible, than to say, well, the one God exists in three persons, three separate persons. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and yet the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. Sometimes this is depicted as a Trinity shield. I didn't put it on there, but that's the only other way to, to really keep it straight. This is who God is. And each one of them is fully God. They're not part of God. The Spirit's not one-third of God, Father's not one-third, the Son's not one-third. No, each of them is 100% all of God. The fullness of deity dwells in the Son, the New Testament says. And that's true of the Spirit as well, and the Father. How can that be? Well, there's definitely a mystery there. But each one of them is fully God. They are in one another, and yet they are not the same. And I'll say one other thing. Though fundamentally one and equal, the three persons of the Trinity have different functions. 
Fundamentally one and equal, the three persons of the Trinity have different functions. And this is actually a concept we again saw from John 5 last week in, in our sermon. Jesus testifies that the Father and Son do every work together. And this is true of the Spirit as well. Whatever God does, because he is one, because he is united within himself, the whole Trinity does together. It's not like, oh, I'm going to do this thing over here. I'll catch up with you guys later. No. Whatever the, tr whatever the Trinity does, the whole Trinity participates. However, in the actions that God does, in the actions that the Trinity does, there are specific roles. There are different roles in each divine work and roles that cannot be duplicated by other members of the Trinity or that are not duplicated. For example, in the way the Bible describes the work of God in salvation, we hear descriptions such as these. The Father decrees salvation. He places his elect ones in the Son before the world begins, and he lovingly sends his Son as a saving gift to the world. These are unique things that the Father does. The Son, meanwhile, is the one who is incarnated, the one who is sent. He gives himself as a sacrifice for sin, and completing his work, rising from the dead, ascending to heaven, he now intercedes and mediates between the Father and saved believers. Meanwhile, the Spirit regenerates elect believers, indwells them, and works to sanctify them through the illumination of the Word of God. These are things that are ascribed to different persons within the Trinity. And this is just one example when we think about broadly of salvation. As I said, in each of these divine works, the members of the Trinity are in one another. This is something that's very explicit from Jesus in the, the Gospel of John. He says, the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. And as a result of salvation, we are put in Jesus. That has an interesting effect when we consider the different functions within the Trinity. Even though it is the Spirit who indwells us, the Bible can also say that the Father and Son also come to make their dwelling in us. How do they do that? Through the Spirit. So it's the Spirit who does it, and yet it's connected to the Father and the Son. Yet, there is, a distinctive, there is such a distinctiveness in roles that we can justly say that it was the Son who came and was incarnated. It was the Son who died upon the cross, and it was not the Father who came. It was not the Spirit who came and died upon the cross. Neither of those is true. It was just the Son. Yes, the Son can never lose his connection to the Father and the Spirit, and yet it was the Son who did that specifically. Now, we can only go so far according to what the Bible tells us. You say, okay, I kind of get it, but I don't fully get it. I understand. That's the, that's the mystery of the Trinity. We're not going to get an exhaustive understanding of this because there is nothing like the Trinity in our world. And yet the Bible does give us sufficient understanding, adequate understanding, so we can say, all right, I get the basics of how this works. I don't fully get it, but I can affirm this, and I can worship God for this. Because truly, this is part of what makes God holy. I don't just mean holy in the terms of pure. This is what make God's, makes God special, holy in that sense, totally different, totally set apart. He is triune, one God and three persons, Absolutely equal and yet different in function, different in the roles as they carry out their works. A great mystery, a wonderful mystery. We can only begin to understand it, but we can't affirm it because that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible is clear about the divine personhood of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thus, the Trinity is a fundamental doctrine that Christians must adequately understand and believe. All right. Questions about what you've heard? Yeah, Mike. Okay, why was the Spirit called the Holy Ghost before and now we call him the Holy Spirit? So I think the King James Version calls him the Holy Ghost. And that is because the word for Spirit... Uh, the word commonly used for the Spirit in the New Testament, pneuma, could be translated as ghost or spirit. It could also be translated as breath. But you're trying to use the context to give the best 
translation of it. And so in earlier translations, they felt like ghost was an appropriate way to describe it. But in more modern translations, we've moved away from that word. But it's not like ghost is an evil, wrong translation. No, it's, it's, a, it's a fine, it's an adequate translation. It's just that these days we feel like spirit better communicates the idea of that Greek word. So it's not like he evolved from ghost to spirit. Nothing like that. Or are you going to say more? Yeah, so that's a good question, Mark. As with any other attribute, any other perfection of God, even the ones that we call incommunicable, there is a certain way in which we imitate, we seek to emulate that quality of God. Obviously, we are never going to be triune like God is. We are never going to be three in one because there's just certain things that are unique to God in that. However, even in the verse that you pointed out and other verses in the New Testament, especially the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17, one of the most common desires slash commands that God gives towards his people is that they be united. They be united in the way that they think. They be united in purpose, not in a sameness, a complete duplication of what people are, but in the unity of diversity that should characterize marriage, that should characterize the church, and that ultimately reflects God. In that sense, yes, we definitely reflect the Trinity, or we are to reflect the Trinity. Jesus says explicitly in John 17, God, make them, speaking to the Father, make them one as we are one. How can he get more one than the Trinity? And he says, that's what I want them to be with one another and with me. So it doesn't mean that we are then to be absolutely the same, erase all the distinctions that exist in our persons. Rather, it's to have that overarching unity within the diversity that says we are all oriented towards the same goal. We have the same attitude towards one another, that humble attitude of Jesus. We are all using our gifts in different ways, but it is all part of fulfilling the commands and purposes of God. So yes, in that way, we are to apply, we are to reflect the Trinity. Other questions? Sure. That's right. Right, for sure. Part of it, the unique essence of God that we are not is one of the reasons that we cannot be exactly like the Trinity, and yet we can reflect the unity and diversity. And not just the functional unity and diversity, but the love that characterizes the Trinity for itself. The unity that we have is ultimately built upon love. We are to love one another. I mean, that's the other thing that John is emphasizing again and again, reflecting Jesus' own teaching. How are people going to know that you're Jesus' disciples? It's by your love for one another. That's a reflection of God's love for himself, the members of the Trinity. That's why they're so united, but that's partly why they're so united, is because they love one another. That, too, we can reflect. I had another thought. Mm, I forget what it is, but any other questions? Uh, Sage. Okay, interesting question. So um, Sage is mentioning that the Bible, New Testament, specifically says repeatedly that we are in Christ. God has placed us in Christ. We're in Christ. Now that we're saved, we're in Christ. How does that fit with the roles of the Holy Spirit and Father as well? Well, I think if we're talking about functional distinctions within a trinity, it is something unique about the Son that we are placed in him. 
primarily. Now, he's not going to be disconnected from the Father or the Spirit. So it is also proper for us to say that we are in God. But how are we in God? It's specifically through the Son. To use the marriage analogy that the Bible uses, he is the bridegroom, we are the bride, in our marriage to him, our spiritual marriage to him, we are one with him. We become one flesh, or you could, to make the analogy more proper, we are one spirit with him. 1 Corinthians 6 actually says that about us and the Lord. So, yes, the oneness, even the, the, the spirit dwelling in us is connected to that, but in terms of our, I don't even sure if I can fully describe it, but we are united to God by Jesus Christ. A application of that is the indwelling spirit of Christ in us. But it's interesting that the Bible doesn't say that we are specifically in the spirit or in the Father. Not that we are not united to the Father, there isn't any sort of he and us and us and him, but it is primarily the Son that is emphasized. So there is, it does seem to be that that is a unique aspect of the Son's work of redemption connected to us. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly, when we try and work out <laughs> different things that the Bible says about the Trinity, uh, we quickly run into things that are kind of hard to figure out. So some of that we're just going to have to lead to. I don't know fully how this works, but I believe what the Bible says. Part of how we are, to repeat something I said, part of how we abide in Christ is by walking in the Spirit. It is utilizing the spirit that now indwells in us to uh, walk in the way that Christ has called us to. So there's going to be this overlap, which I don't know if I can fully describe. I can just say that, you know, these are the different things that the Bible says. Jody. Right, so Jody's pointing out a good point that we can maybe tie ourselves in a knot trying to figure out the metaphysics when the practical application is pretty clear. To abide in Christ, to walk in Christ means to be obedient to him and to believe in him and believe in his promises. And yet that practical application is based on a metaphysical reality, which has come to pass through the gospel. Why is it that we can abide in Christ practically by obedience to him? That's because Spiritually speaking, in a way we cannot fully understand, we are in him. He's in us. Right. 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 One minute left. Paul. Yeah, the Bible does seem to speak specifically of our possession or our being given specifically to Christ, specifically to the Son. That was part of the love of the Father being expressed to the Son. And the Son, in love back to the Father, receives that gift, saves that gift, and is going to present us to God um, uh, at the end. All right. I'm sure there are more questions. I don't know if I can answer them. If you want to talk more, we can uh, talk afterwards. But that's it for today. Next time, we will look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We'll even address questions as, what does it mean to be baptized by the Holy Spirit? And what does it mean to be filled up by the Holy Spirit? So be back next time for that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. You are an amazing God. You are mysterious, and yet it is also wonderful. 
thank you for showing us your trinity. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that you have caused to dwell in us, this magnificent spirit who is also God, who is also a person. I pray, God, that we would not grieve the spirit, but we would please the spirit and walk in the spirit. And you help us to do that more as part of our ministering to one another today through teaching, through fellowship, and all those things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you.